Pie. This is a podcast of the best bits of breakfasts for the week ending December 6th, our very our second last week of the year. Uh, breakfasts is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's podcast, you will hear our very interesting conversation with Dr. Amy Baird about her book, Sex in the Brain, How Your Brain Controls Your Sex Life. We also chatted to our wonderful producer slash regular book reviewer, Elizabeth McCarthy, about uh, a new book called On Drugs by Chris Fleming. Uh, we also were delighted to be joined by Casey Bonetto, who came in to talk about a swinging bells Christmas. Uh, and Chris KP talked about um, various things, including spew. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a bit of a warning on that yeah. one. And also, we just we just had a, bit, a chat about what we were getting up to on the weekend. Yes. And our Friday funny mug and Nat Harris played with us a suction-based cleaning quiz. And we spoke to Kate Tawney, CEO of the State Library of Victoria, about their massive redevelopment recently completed. And uh, that's that. That's and it. This is our this is our very, this is our second last week, a penultimate week. That's right. I'm using that word yes. right. I guess. And that means that next Friday. So if you're listening, to, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this podcast, but next Friday, the 13th of December, we are having our big farewell uh, end of year show at the Corner Hotel on the Corner Rooftop from six until nine a.m. You can come along and hang out with us. There's free coffee and pastries. Uh, Richo's going to be there. Jess Ribeiro is going to be there. The Kates are going to be there. And, plus and you're going to be there. Yeah, I'll be there. You'll be oh, there. Oh, the listener's going to be there. Oh, yes. Yeah, so come along. <laughs> Get out of your podcast and into the... Exactly. It'll be huge. And if you're listening to us after the fact, it was huge. <laughs> yeah, you missed out. <laughs> Triple R. Dr. Amy Baird is a clinical neuropsychologist with a Master of Clinical Neuropsychology and PhD from the University of Melbourne on the topic of sexual outcome after epilepsy surgery. Her book, Sex in the Brain, How Your Brain Controls Your Sex Life, draws on true stories and explores how what happens in our brains influences what we do with our bodies. And she joins us now. Dr. Amy Baird, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, now, w- when you decided to become a clinical neuropsychologist, you didn't expect that you'd end up writing about sex. Um, Can you tell us a bit about your research and how it uh, led to this unquenchable interest? Yeah, sure. Well, actually, it was the topic of my PhD. As you said, I explored um, how people who had had brain surgery to cure their epilepsy, so people who were having um, seizures that were related to a brain abnormality and had that that abnormality removed, um, how they had changes in their sex drive and behaviour after that surgery. Mm. So it was a topic that came about because it was reported by people and people's partners. In some cases, people had really dramatic increase in their sex drive and behaviour and their partners were coming in and saying to my supervisor, I can't keep up with them anymore. I don't know what's happened (laughs) since they had this brain surgery. They're just super keen. So um, I explored whether that was to do with the part of the brain that was actually removed during the surgery or whether it was a psychological thing, like because their seizures were cured, they weren't having seizures anymore, they were much more confident in themselves and they were more in the mood. Mm. And it was a bit of both. Like often it is in these sort of studies, you know, what was to do with that improved self-confidence, but it was also related to the part of the brain that had been um, removed in the, in the neurosurgery. What is the part of the brain that triggers all that? 
like the sexy part. What it's the, the sexy part. part of the brain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in in my research, um, I found that people who had had temporal lobe surgery. So your temporal lobes are behind both your ears. You have a left and a right one. And um, people who had temporal lobe surgery were, were much more likely to report changes in their sex drive after the brain surgery than people who'd had surgery to other parts of the brain. Mm. And even sexual different preferences. Yeah, very occasionally people who'd had the surgery um, change sexual orientation, and in most of those cases, they had they sort of reported that they could be their true self. So they may have had um, you know, homosexual affair. They were heterosexual and had homosexual affairs in their past, but hadn't felt or had you know mainly been heterosexual. And then after the surgery, they were more comfortable in being who they felt they really were. Yeah. Um, or they became quite hypersexual, so that dramatic increase in sex drive, and then they would have multiple affairs uh, uh, in either direction. And you love the complexity of all of this, it seems. And is getting me too a bit of an occupational uh, hazard for you? No, I mean my work. Uh, I mean, I mean, insofar as the anecdotes in the book about patients uh, being very glib and blunt. Well, yeah, look, I've I've been quite separate from the Me Too. That hasn't really come up before in conversation. Or, But um, the bulk of my work now is working clinically. I've got a private practice in Newcastle and I see patients who have any, not just epilepsy, so it's much more broad now, yeah. any kind of brain injury or brain disease. And I don't typically ask them about their sex lives. So as a neuropsychologist, I'm assessing their thinking skills like memory, ability to concentrate, IQ. Um, so sex doesn't come up from my end but often patients raise it because they spend three or four hours with me doing that assessment and that's quite different from other medical doctors where they're sort of in and out within 15 minutes so I think they sort of get lulled into this sense of you know I've got half a day with Amy I can talk about what's going on in my life and I mean sex is a fundamental part of people's lives so when there are changes um, often they haven't spoken about it with anyone else apart from their partner, perhaps. Yeah. So it has come up. I was really surprised to learn that we ha- we have hardly any research on sex, that it's not something that gets well-funded. Um, there's only kind of one major study of, of the, the relationship between our brains and sex going on in the world right now. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of what you've had to overcome to be able to find out more about sex? Yeah, I think it's still, you know, despite our fascination with it, people are kind of fascinated but afraid of sex as well as Mm. that weird mix and that translates into funding for research and universities sort of not wanting to fund controversial topics. So, yeah, it was surprising to me because I did that PhD research 20 years ago now at the University of Melbourne and I didn't stumble into any problems there through the ethics department getting that through, but I interviewed someone for my book who was working at UCLA in in the US, which is quite a well-established, you know, well-respected university, and she was saying in her research, which focused on female orgasm, um, she had a lot of trouble getting ethics through when she was awarded funding to do research. The university wouldn't let her take on the funding and she realised that she just couldn't go forward with her research in a university context, so mm. she started her own private lab um, and that way she said she could outsource the controversy or her collaborators at universities could just outsource the controversy to her. So that really kind of shocked me that still in 2019 people are facing problems that, you know, people, the, the sort of trailblazers of sex research, Masters and Johnson, there was that whole TV show where you could see sort of the barriers they came up against back then. Well, they, they still exist now, surprisingly. Mm. What about the role of medication uh, in the in 
the brain and sex. Yeah, so people, that sort of comes up in my book in relation to Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's disease is a neurological condition that's um, due to lack of dopamine in the brain and it causes mainly movement dysfunction. So people shuffle and, and have movement difficulties. And the treatment for that is to give dopamine medication to lift that dopamine level in the brain but there can be side effects associated with that and one of the side effects can be um, hypersexuality or an increase in sex drive Mm. and this can cause um, you know it's tricky because you're balancing treatment for the motor symptoms but also these sort of side effects there's they're called impulse control disorders and hypersexuality is one of those but there's also pathological gambling um, and other difficulties that people can face and this can obviously cause dramatic you know, issues in relationships and families. Relationships yeah. can be blown apart by this. And there was a class action? There was, yeah. Yeah, against the um, manufacturers of these dopamine drugs because mm. they hadn't advertised that there were these. So now they do, but at the time that um, when these first came out, there, there were some problems. It's not just um, medication that people with Parkinson's can have for treatment. They can also have deep brain stimulation, um, which is actually stimulating the, uh, the deep structures within the, within the brain um, that uh, that are causing the Parkinson's disease, and s- impulse control disorders can be yeah. a side effect of that as well. So, what do we what do we do now about criminal responsibility with your research and uh, notions of free will? Yeah, that's a really complex topic. You know, when someone with a frontal lobe tumor, um, when that tumor causes them to have pedophilic interests. Uh, and you know the tumors removed and those pedophilic interests disappear it's it's complicated you know they're obviously charged for the offense but i think it's a case by case basis at this stage but you know it needs to be considered that yeah changes in your brain can cause changes in your in your sex life and sometimes in very rare cases that can lead to criminal behavior mm. downloading of child pornography or yeah and it's a really complex issue when it comes to criminal justice what is transient global amnesia? Yeah, so that's a brain condition which is a sudden onset of um, memory impairment where you can't form new memories and um, it, it comes on very suddenly, as I said, but it only lasts for about 24 hours and the person still knows who they are, they can still communicate, but they the main symptoms are that they have repetitive questioning so they and they're disoriented they don't know where they are so they might just repeat over and over again where am I what's going on where am I what's going on and it can be triggered by a, a few different things um, emotional arousal change sudden changes in temperature like people who have dived into a really cold lake can sometimes have this wow. but also sex can trigger it and so what's happening what is sex doing to the brain that that causes that yeah, well, it's a quite a mysterious condition, transient global amnesia, but they think it's to do with changes in blood flow, particularly to the temporal lobes, which we mentioned before. So, and it's quite rare, but as I said, in, in, in some cases, um, it's been found that just prior to the episode of transient global amnesia, people have been having sex. So yeah, right. quite a scary sort of condition if it comes on in that context. Yeah, totally. What about uh, sex addiction? Do, do scientists regard that as a... Are they a bit sus on it or what's the science say? Yeah, very sus. So it's not <laughs> it's not considered a, it's not accepted by the medical profession or even by sex therapy associations. There's a lot really? of controversy around it. Um, it's yeah, there's just not enough evidence currently for it to be considered a, a true condition. Hmm. Same with porn, they sort of go hand in hand. I guess sex and porn addiction very controversial. So it's sort of bandied about 
in you know everyday life but actually when you look at the science of it it's a bit sus as you say yeah. and and how what happens when we map culture on top of neuropsychology yeah i think that's an interesting um point you know we don't have brains in isolation we're sort of surrounded by other people and cultural influences and i don't really address that in my book i'm sort of really taking an oliver Sacks style approach where i talk about interesting cases and and focus more on the brain and behavior relationship more so than culture but i think there's a lot of a lot more research and work that can be done on cultural influences on all of this stuff mm. is there any particular case that that does stick out in your mind as being the most interesting yeah, there's one actually, so about half the cases are people I've seen in my own clinical practice and the other half are people, case studies that I've read about in the literature. But one particular case that I saw sticks in my mind, not because of the sexy aspect of it, but more because of the change in this particular man. So his name was Barry and he'd had a stroke that affected the left side of his brain a few months before I saw him. And he, I always talk to people's partners in my assessments and... Um, he came in and he'd had quite a big stroke and he was saying, oh, I'm pretty feeling really wonderful. I'm feeling great. Everything's good. And then I spoke to his wife and she said, he used to be the biggest asshole. I hated him. We were about to get divorced. And after he had this stroke, it just changed him into a different man. He became this romantic, lovable guy because he used to just grunt at her and not really make eye contact and they were on the verge of divorce after the stroke he used to just say I love you you're so beautiful you're... so it sort of created this more lovable man which was so it's quite rare that a stroke can have such a positive any kind of brain injury it's rare that people talk about a positive yeah. effect of that and for this couple his stroke really saved their marriage he was just a completely changed man God. so they, they really stick in my mind that couple is there one great riddle that you'd like to solve the most that hasn't yet been solved is there something that sticks out for you yeah I raise a lot of questions in the book but the one that really sticks in my mind is this issue of um, what's going on in the brain in people who have this pedophilia you know I think Mm. it's such it has such devastating consequences for victims and for the perpetrators too and there are these rare cases as I say where people have have brain injuries or brain conditions who develop this sexual interest and um, that just there's in Germany they're doing a lot of research in this area on people who have this condition but have not yet committed a, a criminal offence. So they have the interest in children but they haven't gone that step further and committed the offence. And they've actually found differences in people's brains of people who have not yet offended and people who have the interest. And I think there needs to be a lot more research in that to know what triggers these people into offending. How does this interest develop? brain-wise and, and, you know, the more we research it, the more likely we are to be able to prevent it. Mm. And as the population ages, is there anything that we should keep in mind uh, where, where that intersects with your work? Yeah, well, I write in the book a lot about people with dementia and how dementia, there's different types of dementia, they, that can cause changes in, in sexual behaviour. And, you know, we have a lot of people with dementia in aged care facilities. Sometimes um, sexual behaviours go on in aged care facilities. People form new relationships, even when they're, you know, long-term married partners are out in the community. It's complicated. And how aged care facilities are dealing with sex, mm-hmm. that's a big issue too. You know, often people think, oh, they're old, they're not having 
having sex. Well, that's a lie. Heaps of sex. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But unprotected sex as well. Yeah, and there's sexual assaults that you know it's often not always consensual. Sometimes people with dementia can be perpetrators or victims of sexual assault, and this is a big issue in how this is being managed in aged care facilities. It's complicated. And I think it needs to be further researched. Yeah, how to punish someone who doesn't know they've done something wrong. or Exactly, yeah. Mm. Well, Sex in the Brain, How Your Brain Controls Your Sex Life covers all these issues and more. It's out now via New South Books and we've been speaking to its author, Dr Amy Baird. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. Triple R. Triple R. Kathy's here to chat about books. Hi, Hi. Daniel. How are you going? Yeah, hello, good. Sarah. Hello, Geraldine. Hello, hello. winner. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, you go, girl. <laughs> I went to my high school reunion the other night and someone said, this is a spin out. And I thought, I haven't heard that in 20 years. Um, hey, I'm here to review a new memoir about addiction. It's by Chris Fleming and it's called On Drugs. And Fleming is a Sydney-based academic and this memoir is stunning. His stories of being a high-functioning addict are... Uh, frank, devastating, and at times very funny. If you can imagine a mild-mannered Australian David Sedaris type humour mm-hmm. describing a raging addiction to alcohol, over-the-counter medication, marijuana, speed, all the drugs ever, then really that's what unfolds um, over these pages. And, um, yeah, so what can I tell you about Chris Fleming? He's someone who was never really particularly comfortable in his own skin. He had a history of, oh, he has a history of obsessive compulsive disorder and body image issues. Um, He was always academically very bright and threw himself into hobbies like making music, martial arts, um, boxing, uh, bodybuilding. He became addicted to all manner of substances very quickly and his appetite for alcohol and drugs is compulsive compulsive and completely dangerous and it's it's astounding that he's still alive Mm. um so but his his addictions have not stopped him excelling academically so and one of the really interesting aspects of this memoir is the extent to which drugs have assisted him in work and study at one point he meets a psychiatrist who hits the nail on the head and says something like you don't use to relax, you use to get things done and to function, don't you? And, that you know, that's a real light bulb moment um, in Chris Fleming's sort of addiction, life of addiction. Um, but that that's not to detract from uh, his shocking behaviour when he is addicted, you know, as a father and as a university teacher. So he's high functioning, but he's not always getting away with it. Mm. So particularly as a, a teacher, there are just some incredibly... Um, professionally embarrassing moments and as a father uh there's some terrible things going on it's a very frank book and um it it really digs into the games and the tricks and uh the bargaining that the addicted mind does with itself and moreover um you know the deals that you cut that the addict cuts with himself as well as with you know the dealers that he's dealing with um so he doesn't – Chris Fleming doesn't really stock up on substances because he doesn't – he thinks that he can quit at any time. So even though his addiction is going for such a long time, he – you know, for example, he'll go to the bottle shop and get like three long necks thinking, oh, that'll do me for tonight. And then he finishes the three long necks and, of course, he's back at the bottle shop because 
Yeah, so he doesn't... There's something um, not quite cognizant with him about the extent of his addiction, particularly his addiction to um, over-the-counter opioids. Um, that I, I haven't really read much about um, Australia's issue, an Australian's issue with over-the-counter opioids, but this is just extraordinary. So... The lengths he goes to score, particularly with over-the-counter medication, is clever and industrious. And I'm reading all these scenarios of the work he does to procure drugs and then to get the drugs in his system, thinking that's so much time-consuming work because the person addicted to alcohol just has to go into a bottle shop. Mm. The person addicted to other things has to do an incredible amount of work to get the drugs and to get them in their system. And, um, yeah, so so one of Fleming's many undoings, he, he relapsed as he's writing this book as well. He's still Jesus. alive. So he's he's an academic still. Um, one, one of his many undoings is, is that his academically informed brain is pretty much attacking the rationale dished out in rehab and in 12-step programs. So he's an absolute smart-ass in rehab and any rehabilitation method they put in front of him, he demands peer-reviewed papers um, and, and evidence and he, write, he writes about his intellectual pretensions in a very funny way with respect to addiction and, um, and after finish it, finishing this book, you realise that for him... Recovery is very fragile and it's ongoing and it's very unpredictable. What's the nature of his academic career? Cultural studies and philosophy. Right. Does it reflect? How does it reflect on his employer? Does it reflect at all? Does he? Is he? He does he speak frankly? Is he still employed by them? Or? He appears to be. Right. Um, yeah, so he's deliver- he delivers some lectures and papers to students completely off his face. And the students can tell. And there's certain times when students are just looking at him with absolute contempt. Um, it doesn't really go into the professional, how professionally the university has dealt with that at all, if they have at all. I'm not sure. Um, so, is he likable? Yeah. Oh, utterly likable. But, really? But, I. I wouldn't want him to be a friend because he would, of course, let oh. you down so much. Yeah, yeah. So uh, utterly likable. Like there's something so sort of um, human and helpless about addiction. And and he he just has this kind of lighthearted way of describing trying to procure 48 tablets of Nurofen Plus a day wow. before it was, you know, before yeah. you couldn't get it. Because you can't get it as easily. Like I think now you, it has to be prescribed Neurofen Plus because it's got all the opioids in it. So, he, but he talks about you know chemist shopping and all that kind of stuff um, in this sort of really knockabout, endearing way. Um, and it's not, uh, it's not like he's trying to con you and to win you over and to think he's a nice guy because he's very honest with the amount of times he's completely stuffed up and stuffed over and you know done the wrong thing by his family and his children and things like that. So is his relapse written into the book? You said that he relapsed when he was writing. Is, yeah. is that something he addresses in yeah, the book itself? But, yeah, but by then you're so used to – you're not surprised really, yeah. you know. Um, and one, one of the things now I think, and this this book adds to this, is that 
it's so clear that addiction doesn't discriminate. You know, it hits people from all walks of life. Mm. What does discriminate? And that's really clear reading this book and many other books that I've read about addiction. What does discriminate is access and resources to recover. You know, those things are available and support networks are far more available to people who have money, Mm. really. Um, And But also if he's still employed and he's still doing his job while he's like So that's that's a excellent point, Geraldine, because he has a life that he can look at and think, I've got this life that's better than addiction. Mm. You know, a lot of people don't have a life that they don't want to escape from. Yeah, he yeah. Ha- he has a life that he can um, th- that will serve him well as a human being and as an academic, and he can flourish there. So that option is open to him. But a lot of people who are addicted, they don't have a home to go, you know, a great home to yeah. be in while they recover or anything like that. So the socioeconomic ramifications of being addicted in our culture are really. Um, Discriminatory, mm. and does he acknowledge that in the in the book? Um, he talk about it much? Or? No, mm. no, he doesn't talk about that. But I don't necessarily think he has it's, to. Yeah, I don't yeah. think he's unaware of it. I, he's. It's not like he's unaware of um, the particular privilege he has. Mm. But but I do think that reading this, you know, we need to get over looking at addiction as a moral failing. Yes, as a personality flaw. We just we don't look at cigarette addiction as you know this person has. This person's a terrible person. Look at them addicted to cigarettes. We don't do that anymore because we recognise completely now as a society that cigarettes are addictive. But we still don't recognise that alcohol and drugs are completely addictive and that some people will get addicted and they kind of can't help that. There's something going on where they just can't help their addiction. We still sort of look at those people as though it's a moral failing. Mm. Um, that there's free, that there's free will involved as yeah, well. Yeah, that there's sort of free will. And for some people, it, there just isn't. Like, we don't talk enough about how alcohol is so addictive. It really is. Mm. And some people just... Cannot stop drinking. And so his his compulsive use of alcohol and drugs is, to my mind, just completely fascinating, but completely human. Like, why wouldn't you get addicted to this stuff? Do you get a free philosophy tutorial reading the book as well? Uh, what, sorry? Do you get a free philosophy tutorial reading the book as well? <laughs> he does He does cite particular um, philosophers that he sort of momentarily latches onto to help him. And he sort of analyses a couple of films, particularly that film Half Nelson, which oh, I haven't yeah. seen, which is apparently about a, te- a school teacher in Brooklyn who has a crack is addiction. Ryan Gosling? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, so this is just a, an outstanding memoir, really. It's out through Giramondo, Giramondo Press. They're a little publishing house um, that have been going for many years in Australia and they put out some fantastic literature. All right. It's On Drugs by Chris Fleming. Elizabeth, thank you. No worries. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Casey Bonetto is an award-winning writer and musician and co-host of Superfluity, Tuesday nights on Triple R. He's also master of ceremonies of a swingin' Bella Christmas, the finger snap and toe tap and romp, which if you didn't catch last Christmas, then you can do so this month. And the jolly man, literally in red, joins us now. Casey Bonetto, welcome back to Breakfasters. Sarah Daniel, Geraldine, here it comes, the Yuletide scene. 
Closer than you might believe Just three weeks till Christmas Eve Sarah Daniel, Geraldine I hope you've kept things squeaky clean Santa's ruthless and precise He goes through every broadcast twice Smithbird Hickey Can't you hear sleigh bells ringing Drawing near Reindeer hooves roaring past Slowing down Breaking fast <laughs> Sarah Daniel Geraldine Three wise folks Who should be seen Friday week At the rooftop oh, okay. Ho, ho, ho Ah, ah coming. <laughs> <laughs> it really is one of life's professional pleasures to be serenaded by Casey. If it you haven't is. done it, I'd recommend it. Yeah, it truly is. Well, thank you. A pleasure to do so. <laughs> thank you. Uh, now, Swing and Bella Christmas, it's it's very popular, huh? It's been going, well, it, it's, it's outlasted Bella Union, of course, which is the <laughs> venue that we started doing it in. Um, we started, like, when... Almost when Belly Union, when when my partner Catherine started running Belly Union, this is like 2006 into 2007. I think the end of 2007, we did our first very Bella Christmas show. Mm-hmm. And it's been going so long that, uh, for instance, I think Tim Minchin did his first Australian performance of White Wine in the Sun at, oh my God. at Very Bella Christmas. So this is some time back. Um, and uh, then it's sort of uh, at, at some stage we decided to add a horn, like a little horn section and have, you know, trumpet and saxophone and all that sort of stuff ripping through. Uh, and so it became a swinging Bella Christmas. And then um, uh, I guess about a half dozen years ago, uh, Geraldine Quinn came on board as as the co-host. So she and I sort of, you know, swap songs at different times and do stupid Christmas duets. And then we have special guests who have ranged all over um, – you know, and we we try and sort of mix it up and keep it, but different years. But uh, Deb Conway and Willie Ziggier, uh, Tim Rogers, uh, Paul Kelly has actually come in one year and done How to Make Gravy with the Band. Oh my gosh. Um, and we, we totally perplexed him by doing it in uh, Rocksteady, Scarbeat, <laughs> you know. So, and he was terrific. He was terrific. He went back and relearned it as a Scar song and came out and did it. And also saying, you know, um, uh, Tripod, uh, who regularly uh, perform in it, um, bless their bless their hearts. Uh, Tripod and Eddie Perfect used used to do that version, still do on occasion of of uh, Paul Kelly's "Meet Me in the Middle of the Air," you know, yeah, the a cappella yeah. thing. Paul sang it with them, <gasps> all five of them singing just in the middle of the venue, like off mic, just uh, with wow. it echoing out around the room. The, oh. Things like that. Oh, I just got a chill. Goosebumps yeah. from a description. It's just a, a, we have so we've written a whole bunch of songs bit by bit we've written more original songs to go in the night so now the first half of it is a, a set of original songs about Christmas 
about, you know, the reindeer formerly known as Rudolph and about, you know, Mrs. Claus and a whole bunch of different stuff. And then the second half we just grab carols and smash them into Off pieces. You go, and, yeah. you know. Do you have a do you have a carol that you think you've resurrected in your mind that maybe you're on the fence with, but you thought, I'm gonna rearrange this and fall in love with it? I, I still love doing um uh, Deck the Halls, which we, we sort of start the second set with every year and we do it at um uh the Wheeler Centre uh, show of the year too, which is the the deck the halls with boughs of holly. La 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 la. And it's so great, like like an audience. Ta- it takes an audience about two lines to catch up, and then the whole audience is singing like Don. We know our gay apparel. La 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 la. <laughs> Has there been a Six White Boomers parody yet? Oh, no, there hasn't. I we feel haven't... like there's a song waiting to happen with the OK hey, Boomer. It's already there, though. Yeah, but just chuck in an OK Boomer and <laughs> yeah. it's done. Well, there's, I, I think uh, Tripod have written a, a new song, which they've already done there, um, their Christmas uh, show at the Spotted Mallard, about uh, a... a I, uh, I've got the. I don't want to misquote the title because um, Scott just sent it through to me the other day. The band's got a But it's definitely about a. a um, uh, have a white male Christmas. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, it's great fun. What are rehearsals like? Are they joyous or...? Generally, we only do one rehearsal because, <laughs> yeah. you know, you've got to leave space to, to stumble over them live and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, guests come in and sing. Uh, this year we're doing uh, three shows at uh, the Melbourne Spiegel Tent, which are all sort of sold out, but we're doing the one with Tripod at the Hepburn... Uh, Palais, mm. the Palais Hepburn, I should say, in, in uh, just out of Darsford, which is uh, uh, where I've moved to up near to. Oh, how convenient! Yes, that's right. <laughs> that was the thing. You sort of moved up. We've moved up. Kath and I've moved up past Darsford, uh, uh, and uh, we're out in that area. So it was sort of like we've got to do one up here. We've got to do yeah, a country. Delightful. Oh. What uh, night's that happening? That's on Saturday, the fourteenth of December. So the um, it's scary when you start to do the maths now because you go, yeah. Saturday the 14th of December, of that weeks. would Next be week. Saturday week. Yeah. Yeah. Are the acts going to stay at yours? Uh, some of them are, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've, got, the, we've got land to put tents on and we've got all that sort of stuff, ah. but also and the Hepburn Palais provide. Who are? To... Tell us about some of the guests that you've got. Well, um, yeah, Tripod for the Hepburn Palais show, which is great because they always uh, do a little um, mini set of their Christmas, they've got a stack yeah. of Christmas songs. Of course, they've done a Christmas album before uh, called "For the Love of God." <laughs> That's a great Christmas title, um, and uh, and they all sing songs individually as well. And then um, uh, in the shows at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent, we've got Ash Flanders from Sisters Grimm, who's uh, oh, a, a terrific, you know, very funny performer. He's coming in to do stuff. Jude Pearl. Oh, uh, she's so great. Yeah, absolutely magnificent singer yeah. coming in to do stuff. And then on, on the Sunday, we've got um, uh, a, a couple of members of the aforementioned tripod coming back in and Ange Hart coming in oh. as well to, to sing. Um, also, just quickly, because you've got so much going on, um, Tuesday night, you, I heard you freestyling uh, during the changeover of shows. That was so terrific. Yeah. I mean, that was just, a, I mean, I was caught absolutely flat-footed because I'd recorded a little instrumental intro to Superfluity and I turned it on just going, 
Ah, instrumental boring. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just going to turn the mic on and just freestyle over the top and go, yeah, that was, you know, Declan uh, guest hosting on The Mission, all that sort of stuff. And all of a sudden, Declan flicked his studio back on and went, yeah, I'm Declan. And, I'm about- <laughs> and so clearly just smoked me out of the room as a freestyler. It was just sort of like, oh, yeah, okay. Don't do that, Casey. Don't don't meddle with forces you cannot possibly comprehend. And is there any... If people want their Casey fix as well, is there anywhere else we can get it? Uh, tomorrow night, show of the year. Uh, the Wheeler Centre show of the year at, um, at the Athenaeum is uh, terrific as usual. Laura Jean, who you were just playing before, is playing as part of it. Brodie Lancaster is going to... Um, I believe, dissect the Richmond Premiership <laughs> for us. Yeah. Oh, um, so Nath Valvo and also uh, Bill Shorten and also Paul Kelly wow. and uh, Evelyn Aralewin, Alice Bishop, uh, the Marindas, Louise Milligan, heaps of folks. It's going to be I'm great. I was just going to say that Brodie Lancaster is going to be so excited. You mentioned her before, uh, the former Labor leader and Paul Kelly. So, well, it was yeah. in order of importance, Brodie, yeah, so you're right up there yeah. at the top. Uh, but for the Christmas spirit, Swingin' Bella Christmas is – I feel bad saying when it's on because they're sold out. But there is – one. I know. And so we'll go through. It's Friday 20th, Saturday 21st and Sunday 22nd at Melbourne Spiegel Tent in Collingwood. They're sold out, but there is a show Saturday 14th of December at Palais Hepburn at Hepburn Springs. Um, you can get tickets through OzTix or their website, palais-hepburn.com. And it's only like an hour up the road. Like it, it, it'll be a good little yeah. Christmas yeah. Saturday night Christmas it's worth a drive. Oh, for sure. Absolutely, what a Christmas road trip. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Casey Bonanno, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, guys. Triple R. Chris KP is here to bring weird science to the Triple R airwaves. G'day, Chris. Hello there. How are you? Swell. Well. Good. Yeah, good to hear. Good to hear. Uh, listen, it's uh, look. This is breakfasters, which means uh, I have to assume people are eating breakfast, which means I should apologise for what I'm about to tell you. Mm. Oh, yes, uh, my favourite kind of science. Segment. Yeah, it's it's a it's a little bit gross. Um, but also, and also, let me just um, disclaimer: anything I'm about to describe, this is not a good idea. Yeah, do not try this at home. Do not try this at home. Unless you want to win a Nobel Prize or well, something. Well, I was going to say, you know, <laughs> you know, Yang, this bit of give and take. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to take you through a couple of my favourite examples of scientists experimenting on themselves um, because sometimes, you know, there are reasons why they do that. Look, scientists are into what they do. They're really genuinely curious people and they're very imaginative people. They're often very driven people. Um, so when circumstances, you know, fall the right way, Sometimes people experiment on themselves, or they certainly have. Uh, and one of my favourite, grossest examples is about a bloke called Stubbins Firth, um, who was... And what's uh, his real name? Uh, uh, Firth is with two Fs, too. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I think this is before crazy names were a thing. This guy was, <laughs> yeah. was rocking it, yeah. So he was, uh, he was studying yellow fever, and he had this theory that yellow fever was not transmissible between humans directly. Um, and if you have yellow fever, it's grim, okay? You, are, you, you often vomit up this black vomit. Um, and he was saying, yeah, it's horrible and it, it's, it's terrifying and it kills people, but you can't spread it from person to person directly. It ain't that simple. Uh, and to prove this, uh, he, uh, he ingested someone else's vomit. Um, oh. And yeah, and I quote, uh, 
I took this internally half from half an ounce to two ounces, drinking it without dilution. Unquote. Uh, <laughs> the good news is he didn't get sick. Um, how you can oh, eat someone else's vomit and not get sick, I don't know. Um, it turns out he was really very close to right, by the way, too. Um, the crazy thing about it is that it turns out that you, most of the transmission is actually by mosquitoes, so it's, it's bloodborne, if you like. Um, and the guy that, one of the guys that actually discovered that had himself been getting mosquitoes to bite him in order to find out if this was true. Um, so then caught it, well, he, consequently? It, he, he, he didn't die because of that, um, but did die, to, die of uh, yellow fever later on. Oh, so, God. Yeah. Anyway. It's interesting because yeah. you say one to two ounces of black vomit. <laughs> and and do you... <laughs> How much is, is okay? Is well, that what you're yeah, it's more like if you were doing it, would you... Would it be like a Band-Aid, like right off, or let's chug this? Or are you... Because two ounces is, what, Too 50 grams? Stop for the deep... No. no, there was a warning. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, we're don't, here now. Don't know no. is my answer. Yeah, I, okay. I feel like... If I really felt I had... Look, the thing is, if you're really driven to do this, you don't need that question. Yeah. Because you're already doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If it was you and me having a dare after a couple of drinks, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> a chaser of something pretty heavy would help. Yeah. I guess. Um, there is, of course, uh, a, a fantastic Australian example. Um, so Robin Warren had been studying ulcers and the conventional knowledge at the time was that you know ulcers were predominantly caused by stress, um, which turns out to be largely untrue. I mean, that stress doesn't help, but it's not the great cause. Uh, and uh, he started working with a guy called Barry Marshall and the two of them had this theory that it was actually bacteria that was causing this, but they couldn't get a, 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 you know, a, a program up and running to actually test this properly. They couldn't get the clinical trial. And so in the end, uh, you know, Barry Marshall himself just basically ingested a bunch of bacteria and, yeah, sure enough, got a whole bunch of ulcers. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then they gave him uh, antibac- antibacterial treatment and it cured it. Cured his ulcers. Huh. Mm. Nobel go. Prize, thanks very much. <laughs> but uh, thank God it cured him. You know, like he could have just had a stomach full of ulcers. That's the thing. It's like, but this is, if you're that confident, I mean, this is the great thing about science. You can get very confident, but ultimately you need the evidence. I need the data. Mm-hmm. No matter how much I see it working, I need to have it in a form that's repeatable, that's understandable, in a, in a common language. Were they Aussies? Yeah, yeah. And then, so what? They And they also just took out... You know, because people said stress causes ulcers, and so they just took the sickie away. Or they, they took. <laughs> they... Oh, I don't reckon they took it away. I'm pretty sure it's still there. Okay. <laughs> Evidence suggests it hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, look, I, I'm also. Pre- this is not so much experimenting, but it's a more a proof issue. So, in 1951, when myxomatosis was first released to, to do with uh, to do with rabbits, uh, there was inc- incidentally, coincidentally, totally unrelated. There was an outbreak of encephalitis. Um, in, I think, northern New South Wales or southern New South Wales. Had nothing to do with each other at all. But, of course, you can see what people do. You know, they add one plus three and they get two and then they freak out about it. So there was all this wild media saying, you know, this terrible thing that uh, the Australian scientists produced is causing this terrible disease, etc. which wasn't true, but saying it's not true ain't going to cut it. So, and this is where I reckon, you know, research leaders step up. At the time, so Frank Fenner, who's a great Australian virologist, um, one of the guys behind smallpox, the smallpox vaccine, among other things. McFarlane Burnett, who uh, won a Nobel Prize. Ian Clooney's Ross, who was then the chairman of CSIRO. The three of them injected themselves with myxomatosis. (gasps) Yeah. Uh, In order to say, yeah, it's fine. Uh, And apparently it was kind of a secret, but then after they'd survived and were right, it was announced in Parliament that these three guys have taken a shot of this. So frankly, it's okay for humans. Don't freak out. How hardcore is that? Popping that. So hardcore. Very nice. Thank you. So hardcore. (laughs) Um, 
Uh, I, have, I have two very quick ones um, to, to, to end on, if, you, if you'll indulge me. Um, one of those is from Isaac Newton, a uh, great experimenter, one of the great thinkers, great, great designers uh, of, of his time and one of the early experimenters. Uh, he was interested in light, of course. He was the guy that, that uh, you know, d- described the, the, the rainbow spectrum, interested in light and vision and sight, etc. Um, and could see the, the, the link between how we see uh, physically, like biologically, and what it is we're, we're actually um, observing. Uh, in order to see what this was like, he shoved a bodkin needle in his eye oh socket. Oh, my God. What? In order to squeeze his eyeball <laughs> to see if it changed what he was looking at. Far out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What? Where did yeah. it go? Behind his eyes, so not into the eye, oh, into so the like eye in socket. The, yeah, yeah, behind the, the eye. It was, yeah. What it was something very narrow that he could squeeze between there, so he could just squash his eyeball. Yeah. In fact, I have a good friend, by the way, hi Paul, if you're listening, who um, had, he's, he's pretty short of sight, and when he wanted to see things, watching the TV, he'd sit up close and literally push the side of his eye to change the astigmatism in order to be able to see the TV oh. better. Yeah. We still refer to pushing the eye in um, when you want to see something. Oh, and very yeah. everyone's up touching their eyeball. <laughs> You get itchy eyes now. It'll make me all itchy. Yeah. And finally, again, just just a really nice bit of smart science um, involving yourselves rather than experimenting on yourselves. Uh, Howard Florey, who was the Aussie guy who um, uh, Adelaide born, who um, was behind the development of penicillin as an actual drug during the war, which when this book was going on, he and and his uh, colleague Norman Heatley had to travel from the UK to the US to investigate scaling up penicillin production to you know for the first time making it an industrial but of course it's in the middle of the war right they're flying across the atlantic everybody trusts nobody it's that kind of era and the this whole product they're working on is based around mold spores that's where penicillin comes from and so if all else failed they wanted to make sure they weren't going to lose the mold but mold they can grow as long as they've got the spores. So these guys actually lined the lapels of their jackets with penicillium mold spores. So if everything went wrong and their samples got lost, it's okay. We can grow some more. Oh, my gosh. Spy science. <laughs> That's oh fantastic. And I wonder just quickly how, yeah. uh, you know, is it how much ethics play a role in this? It's like, well, we can't test on someone else. Yeah. So I've got to take the bullet here. It's, look, it's, it is actually, it's seriously not something that it's, it's frowned upon because the bottom line is you are taking a risk for a start. But also, um, if, if there's a reason why it's ethically unwise to do on somebody else, it's probably not all that great to do on yourself. Mm-hmm. But also scientifically, in terms of the quality of the data, you're very close to this. So, in fact, it's often not a good idea because it makes the it weakens the evidence base to some extent, or it can anyway. So, it's this is why, the, why it's frowned upon for both ethical and scientific reasons to some extent, but also just you know bloody risky yeah. <laughs> reasons yeah. as well. So, there's yeah, there's a few reasons why experimenting yourself is not all that. Uh, all that wise. Yeah, all right. spews, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, Chris KP, thank you, I think. Pleasure. <laughs> oh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> Triple. Ah. Anyone going to the Tattoo Expo on the weekend? I think Andrew is. You're not going to go At with him? At some stage. No, I'm not going to go along with him. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I considered it because I thought, well, Jez has got a flash, a pop-up tattoo before. Yeah. A surprise tattoo. So maybe yeah. it's my time to get a surprise tattoo, but no. I think I need to think more about it if I'm going to do it. No, that's that cancels out the surprise, surprise element. element of it. Yeah. Why tempt myself? That's what I'm saying. You don't have any tattoos at all? No. And I, you know. Have you ever thought about getting one? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it pops up. It's not like yeah. I've got a, a lingering desire to get a and, gecko on my ankle yeah. or something. What's the biggest... Uh, tattoo bullet you've dodged 
Oh, I've never, I've never been um, in Bali on a, you know, a, a wreck. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Like, or like, have you like I've planned, like I had planned tattoos in my twenties that I didn't get, and wow. I go, and I, I go, oh, thank God. I think I'd like to get some varicose veins just put on my calves. <laughs> That's right. Why? It's funny. It's no explanation. Why did I ask? I don't know why I followed that up. But uh, Helen Hunt's, I saw Helen Hunt's daughters got tattoos of Helen Hunt on their forearms. Are you serious? <laughs> no, no, I don't believe you. Well, they, they googling this. They and I was like, oh, that's Prince. I, I'm not sure how permanent they are. Is it called a? Henna tattoo, anyway. Oh, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. That's a guess that it's a henna. I, I just wouldn't get my mum on my forearm. Yeah, but no. your mum's not Helen Hunt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. I love Mad About You. What no era? One... What era? I was going to say, is it Mad About You era? No, I think it was. it's later. It's maybe as good as it gets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about Mad About You the other day. In it's like, a great show. Yeah. But I was thinking about how much I didn't like it at the time. Right. Like I, I found yeah. it really boring at the time, but now I look back and I go, no, it was funny. Mm. Yeah, I, I can't remember one episode. Uh, like, oh, I remember having a good time watching it, but I, I don't know what the hell happened. The whole thing was set in their apartment. You know the episode I remember, oh. which was really controversial and big at the time, was the crying baby episode. When they're out sitting outside. When they're sitting outside the door because yeah. they decide to trial the cry, the, the method of letting your baby just cry oh, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And the whole episode is set with them sitting in the hall. Oh, yeah. Feeling distressed. That's, that's good. It that's is, but variety. I feel like it's misleading. It's kind of like Seinfeld set in the whole car park. Yeah. You know, oh, or yeah, in the yeah. waiting room of the Chinese restaurant uh, in the lobby or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Like it's it's memorable because it's different, but I just can't remember. But how come everyone's rewatching Friends? Everyone's rewatching because it's available. Maybe it wasn't like very it's on good. the telly. Oh, maybe you're right. I don't, yeah. Maybe it wasn't. It's, it's a, can you watch it? Where can you watch it? I've never seen it available. So they, I know Paul. Why we're not watching Paul it. Paul Rise is kicking around. He's is he, un- he doing unrecognizable. Now? Really? Yeah. I'm going to Google him now. Like, yeah. Helen Hunt looks amazing. Yeah. Although the tattoos, they're not very, they're not great. They're not good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh, um, I once wanted to get a tote tattoo. That was a bullet I oh, dodged. Cool. Of the tote. The tote logo. Yeah. I mean, there's people out there who have them. Good on them. Oh, I was just in my early twenties, and I just I'm just thankful cool. that I did it. Yeah. I, I just think it would have dated. The stamp no, on my arm. That's no, no, no. Having that tote tattoo. And then because if you started with that, you wouldn't have stopped. Your your arm would be covered in tattoos. Like there was a rumour that a certain high-profile footballer who has lots of tattoos left a gap on his wrist so that he could still get nightclub stamps. <laughs> oh. But I don't know if that's true. But it made me think of that because I wanted the tote. I wanted the opposite. I wanted the tote stamp on my Wrist. Oh, that's clever. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. What, so you get him? Get him for free for- forever. I don't even know that's a thing. Please don't do that and assume again. No, I reckon the toad would be onto it. Probably- <laughs> I reckon the person at the door will go, hang on. Well, I don't remember giving you a stamp. Um, I was going to say, oh, no, I'll leave that. Well, a friend of mine, I'll just quickly add, uh, got an AF- AFI tattoo, like of the band. I think it's oh, short yeah. for a fire inside. Yeah, AFI, Davey Havoc. Yeah. Wow, that's very committed. Not I think so too. A very specific band. To yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas, did they get free entry into the Australian Film Industry <laughs> Awards? That's, <laughs> what I, that's what I thought it was at the time. And then when they changed it to actors, <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> 
Anyway, I won't be going to the Tattoo Expo. Um, I've already got my tattoo. And who knows if I'll get another one. You um, should. You could do a whole um, oceanic scene on your leg. Oh, yeah. Why stop at a whale? Why stop at a whale? Giant squid. Yeah. Do that on the other side. But I, I, I think the, the thing that I love about my tattoo the most is that I don't have to think about it. I never had to think about it mm. and it's there and I'm happy with it. And if that if an opportunity like that comes up again, like if someone walked in the studio and went, I'm going to tattoo your other leg, I'll go, okay, let's go. Would okay, because the seal's broken. I hope that we've got yeah. a tattooist listener who wants to come in and tattoo your leg. Like commercial radio live on air. Oh, yeah, yeah, against the second tap. <laughs> Win a chance to get a second tap with Jess live on air. <laughs> I'll get the listener's face tattooed on my leg oh, yeah. and oh, their yeah. face tattooed Your on, fa- their. Oh, on their It'd be awesome. on their butt I'm though. Right. Yeah. Now we're cooking. Oh yeah, yeah that'd be good. You anyway. know Kate, when Casey the other day called us Smithy, Bert and Hickey, I was like, yeah, that's a good, that's a good breakfast team name. Yeah. Smithy, Bert and Hickey in the mornings. <laughs> I don't know why I sound like Dave Hughes all of a sudden. That was not in my intention. <laughs> anyway, I, um, I'm actually going to Sydney this weekend, um, today actually, which I'm very excited about. Oh. Um, I'm going to go do my show, um, the last the show that I did this year at Comedy Festival at the, um, at the Comedy Store. Oh, for I the to... last time oh. ever. Last time I'm ever doing that show because I've got to write a new one and do a new one. Are you a bit sad to let it go? Yeah, a little bit. There's, but also, I think um, it'll. Um, I've got like a, a recording of it. So we take, when I did it at the Spiegel tent, we videoed it. So I have it. I can watch it now if I want to. And and also, there's you know other bits that have been filmed for other bits. Like you know, I did the bit from the gala and 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 other stuff like that. So there is you know evidence of it around. But sure, I'll be sad to. Um, do it for the last time, but also very excited and a nice way to end it as well. Yeah, mm. it is. And, yeah, it is. It's a, you know, it's got a sense of ceremony, like, you know, whereas a lot of other shows you just finish it. It would just be the last night of comedy festival where you're a wreck and it's a Sunday <laughs> night mm. and you just want to go to bed. Mm. And you're like, oh, thanks for coming, everybody. Is it the visual document that you have of it, is it definitive? Are you, yeah, Is that the... No, nah, it's just a camera set up the back on a tripod. Oh, no, but know? I mean, are you, are you happy with that <laughs> show? And, like, is there material that you – because I saw Dylan Moran the other night and there were cameras yeah, and he said right. he, it made him really nervous and he, you know, he reversed things by accident. And oh. Oh. No, I didn't muck anything up. <laughs> yeah, well. I, I think it's because, you know, because it, it was just a tiny handy cam kind of thing yeah, up yeah. the back and I – and it was – and it was I knew it was filming just so – we did it because I um, struggled to remember all the bits that I did. You know, I'd forgotten the show because I don't write. I don't have it all written down. It's mm. all, you know, from recordings and stuff. In your so head. Yeah, and in my head. So, yeah. So uh, by the end of festival, <clears throat> like I, I think I've recorded a, a few trial shows before we went into festival and then it was like, oh, I've got this. Yep. You do it every night. <clears throat> and then it's like six months later, it's like, oh, do you remember – that 50 minutes of dialogue that you did every night. I'm like, nah. Mm. So, but I did. I feel like you should say, I think that because there's so many bird themes in it, you could have a ceremonial bird. Oh, releasing releasing the the bird. Yeah. (laughs) That's fun. Yeah. Right at the very end of the show, that could be the final, the finale. Someone gives you flowers and you release the doves. (laughs) (laughs) I love 
love it. Um, I'll look into that. I wish you had told me about that earlier. Uh, what are you guys doing for the weekend? I'm babysitting a dash hound. Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah. Good practice. Yeah, it is good practice. I don't, I, I don't know what to expect. Love it that you call it babysitting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's dog sitting, isn't it's, it? Is it good practice for the, baby. the baby? Oh, yeah. I thought. Yeah, mm. yeah good practice. For and I hope we get, get along. I want a dog that's present. Yes. Yeah, I don't want... One that doesn't care about looking you. Looking past me and couldn't no, give a rat. I know. Like, Ralph is emotionally needy, but I don't think I could have it any other way now. Yeah, mm. yeah exactly. I w- yeah, I want to be needed by this dash hound, so I'm looking forward to meeting it. Oh, anyway. that's cool. Yeah. Fun. Uh, I What am I doing tonight? I'm going back to Greville Records because they're having another Richmond Tigers event. What? And uh, Conrad Marshall's launching his new book. So it's the it, when we won the grand final in 2017, handed book that went inside the club. That's right. We is, interviewed him. Yeah. yeah. And this is part two. I wasn't allowed to interview him this time because we've had too many Richmond themed things on the show. Anyway. Yep. Well, uh, dogs allowed because I'm going to need something to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you come along? You should come along. Bring mm. the dash hand. Uh, so that's cool. Warwick's having another event there and that'll be fun and just going to hang out and see some friends. My friend Kat on Sunday, it's her birthday and she's having a big kind of party in a warehouse, but not like a, it would be in your twenties, not like yeah. a rave. It's a kind of family friendly party and there'll be a barbecue oh, and nice. uh, fun drinks and a pool table and games. Oh, yeah. And What a great idea. I yeah. sense a Corey Worthington getting out of control. Yeah, do you? <laughs> yeah. yeah mid thirties. Warehouse party. <laughs> yeah. What's the address? Everyone come along. <laughs> oh, There'll be shoot. a tattooist there. Yeah, oh, my God. Maybe there will be. Uh, so just doing that, otherwise I've, like the, I've got a the, – because the, the bathroom's finished, our bathroom is still in boxes all around my bed. The old one? The, like the – yeah, but the bits and pieces that you've had shoved in bathroom cupboards. You know, bathroom cupboards are full of crap that you just – Yes. I just put all that in buckets mm. and that's still like, that's still around the bottom of my bed. So I have to uh, commit. Sort through that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is uh, it art? Is it hoarding? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Triple R. Our Friday funny bugger this morning, Nat Harris, is upon us. Hello, Nat. Good morning, guys. Good morning. You're all good. I've heard great things about um, the Dolly Parton podcast as well. Yeah, it's good. It's only about six episodes, so you just kind of like dip in and and get out again. But it's, yeah, it's brilliant. To get involved. Um, Speaking of dipping in. Dipping in. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Oh, it'll all come together. Woven together like a... Weave together like a woven basket is what it's going for, but never mind. <laughs> um, look, guys, I don't come on here to just brag, but mm-hmm. um, this past week, I think it's about time as well I had a bit of luxury in my life. You know, you hear me come in, and my, like I've said, I need to like kind of spice up my stories with a bit of... Sure. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I'm always talking about how I took the cheapest flight, or I'm wrong. Yes. I, I yeah. don't have the. You so don't, don't have, have a lot oh. in your bedroom. <laughs> Things got like lamps. that. Yeah, love yeah. lamps. Lamp yeah. lighting is great. Big it is atmosphere. Great. But um, last week, my housemate bought a new vacuum cleaner. Happy days! I know. Oh. Yeah, pretty cool. Bought a Dyson. Is it a cordless? 
No. Oh. Very good. Yeah. Do you guys have vacuum cleaners? Yes, I do. Okay. The height of luxury. The height of luxury. What vacuum cleaner do you have? I have the Dyson. <gasps> oh. Which cord- one? Cordless. Okay. The V7 Animal. Oh, my God, yes, the V7 Animal. Mm. Beautiful vacuum, that one. I'm a, I'm a big fan. You know what I like about it? Yeah. It's because it's cordless. Yeah. You do like 20 minutes of work and then you get to have a break. Brilliant. Well, do you want to know what vacuum we got? Yes. Also a Dyson. We got the Dyson Big Ball Origin. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which allows for easy easy steering. Uh, it's quiet and um, versatile for the ultimate clean. Yeah, because yeah, of the big ball. The big ball technology. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm. And I've become absolutely enthralled in the names of vacuum cleaners. Oh. They are ridiculous. They're wonderful. Well, I think you've... Nailed it with big it's ball, big ball. So now, I, so I've created a bit of a game for us. Yeah. Um. Today, I thought we'd play, and I should just a bit of a um warning for the listeners. This game does involve mature content. Okay. Yeah. okay. Or, or mature themes. Sure. Right. Mature themes. So the game vacuuming salaciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's called vacuum or sex toy. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. All right. Okay. 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 That's the exact reaction that I knew. Really? You would have. Am I that predictable? I was with Elizabeth when you sent through the email saying I want to play a game called vacuum cleaner or sex, sex toy. toy. And and Elizabeth straight away was like, "Oh, that'll be fine. It'll be a bit of fun." And I just I just had a picture in my head of Sarah Smith going, "Oh, <laughs> well, perfect." Um, shall we kick it off? I did find a sound effect. Will it work? No, no. Oh, try is turn your phone on silent. Yeah, excuse me. It's probably not a not we'll a coincidence of a sex toy it, sound effect. Just try it one more time. One was more it, was time. it actually yeah. a? I really want to know what the sound effect is. It's just yeah. a, oh, oh, there you go. I'll play. I'll play that if you get it right. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> okay, first up. Okay, buzz in. All right. Yeah. All right. So the first one. What should What's I go the, for? Do we have to make a vacuum noise to? I think to just buzz the, in? The, I think the buzz probably. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll play the vacuum no noise pun, if you get it right. Okay. Yeah. So the first one. Here we go. Is the Blizzard CX1 Comfort Powerline. Let me just tell you some of the features. Comes with a turbo. Anyway, that's all I had. Dot, dot, dot. What? Oh, comes with a turbo. Vacuum. (laughs) Okay, never mind. (laughs) Correct! Yeah! Comes with a turbo brush, perfect for pet owners. Oh, what a relief! That's a vacuum. Yeah. All right, next one. Um, what do we got? I was going to okay. say that that question kind of. I, no, there's been a warning. It doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was going to say that question kind of hinges on how you spell comfort. But anyway. Oh. <laughs> yes. No, this is kind of this is encouraged, Daniel. Okay. Um, the ball work VK two hundred. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Gonna go um, mm, vacuum. 
Yeah, best vacuum cleaner for <laughs> multi-surface cleaning and head seemingly for every task imaginable. What's oh, it? Oh, <laughs> I know, That's the descriptions great. are amazing. What's it called again? The, the ball work. VK two hundred. Oh, okay, not the ball work. No, not oh, the I ball, had ball work. work as well. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, ball work. Yeah, a lot of balls. There's also the big ball. <laughs> <laughs> There's also the big ball animal too. Like, <laughs> oh my god! Are you doing this while your housemate is vacuuming around you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Wow. This is how I spend my evenings. <laughs> My sister's like, do you want to come out for a wine? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm writing a game for, for, for radio tomorrow. It's called Vacuum or Sex Toys. She's like, you're an idiot. Okay. Um, okay. What about the Cyclone 300? Bzz, that is a vacuum. Ah! I've experienced it. Have you? Yeah, I think so. I've seen it around. Oh, well, yeah. well, well. Geraldine knows her vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. Or she knows... Anyway. Yeah. Oh, no shame in either. No, no. You know, we all enjoy a good clean and we, uh, we're, you know, we're pro-pleasure and enjoying our bodies. Uh, okay, what about the the mains, pow- the mains powered classic metallic magic wand? Oh. That, oh, actually. Hmm. Hmm. Let's say sex toy for that one. Magic that, wand. That's actually a mop. Oh. No, it's not. It's a sex toy. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to throw you off your scent a little bit. Uh, <laughs> off. Also, um, Jez, your buzz sounds like it's running out of batteries. Oh. When you do it, <laughs> Okay, last one. Uh, the pro cordless hand stick. <laughs> <laughs> I just want it to be a sex toy. <clears throat> For you it is. I got- oh. Yes. For sixteen ninety five. It's actually a vacuum. But- ah. Sixteen ninety five. No, sixty nine ninety five. Oh good good value. Very good value. <laughs> Have I got any more? <laughs> Honestly. These guys are too scared to answer. I'm not. Are you? No, no, no. No, I'm, oh. no, I'm not qualified. No, I was, I, I, uh, I have a. I'm still. A fear I'm thinking about my. Vacuum? I have, do have a fear of vacuum. I've got a. I moved in with my uh, girlfriend. Okay. And, 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 yes. Um, but All right. Yeah, we yeah. have competing <laughs> vacuums, so someone had to throw out their vacuum. Okay. Competing like it was, vacuums. It was, a, it was a war of the vacuums. Okay. It turns out she doesn't need my vacuum. Oh. <laughs> I see there was some air quotes. But, but I, I, um, I can't I, believe this. You've, I can't just, you've opened up my eyes to a whole new world. You made me think of Godfrey in a whole different way. Totally. Honestly, mm. you guys should just get on there and browse the Godfrey's catalogue just for a bit of blind entertainment. Yeah. It's so funny. Who is behind this? But uh, we didn't get to it. Do you know what vacuum you have? Uh, no, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it's called, but I've been testing new vacuums recently. Oh, have you? Mm. It got, yeah, it's crazy. Testing new vacuums. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we've all been testing. No, we haven't all been testing. <laughs> uh, Nat, thanks for leaving us all here. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. 
Kate Tawney is the Chief Executive Officer of the State Library Victoria, Australia's oldest public library and one of the first free public libraries in the world. The former Director of News at the ABC and veteran broadcast journalist became CEO in 2015 and has just overseen the completion of the State Library's $88.1 million redevelopment. And to tell us about the institution's new splendour, she joins us now. Kate, congratulations and welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Uh, any Melbourneian who's been in the vicinity of the State Library has seen the restoration in progress over the last two years. Can you tell us what's changed and why it was necessary? Yeah, well look we had a lovely problem at the library for a cultural institution. Mm. We were really, really busy. So if you came <laughs> to the library um, three years ago, it was really hard to find a seat. You know, we, we would have people sitting on the floor next to PowerPoints charging phones and as I say like for a cultural institution, a 163 year year old library, that's a really nice problem to have. Mm. And, and also I think kind of that notion of 20 years ago Um, There was a whole kind of prediction that libraries would no longer be relevant and yet this library is, you know, one of the most visited in the world. So the redevelopment was around looking at the spaces and the uh, the State Library, for those who haven't been there, is in the centre of the city. It goes an entire city block and it's... 23 different buildings that have been sort of added on to over 163 years and that's a nightmare for <laughs> architects and for builders. So it was about getting more space in the same footprint. We talked um, yesterday and you was telling me that there's libraries around the world that are shutting down mm. and Melbourne here with the State Library is thriving and we talked about how there is investment in it as well but what else besides you know that why are people coming in and using the space? I, I think Australia but I think Victoria in particular is quite extraordinary in terms of um, libraries transforming so in Victoria almost half of the population is a member of their public library and I think that's because here librarians they're you know absolutely amazing they're really close to their community they understand what's happening in their community and they've changed their services to meet the demands of community but also I think it's governments whether it's state government or local governments investing in libraries so the state government um, you know invested 60 million dollars in this redevelopment which is phenomenal really Mm. Um, a really great investment. What have you done with the original reading room? So the original reading room um, was closed for 16 years and it's the most stunning room but it was closed because the library didn't have the money to um, to actually do the work that needed to be done. It, it had beautiful skylights that had been covered over because there'd been water damage. Um, so th- one of the one of the really lovely focuses of this redevelopment has been to reopen that and hand that back to the people of Victoria and we could only do that with uh, the Ian Potter Foundation who gave us 10 million dollars um, and it's it's pretty spectacular, it is. isn't it? <clears throat> it really is. I went, <clears throat> sorry, when I was there yesterday, <clears throat> sorry, I was asking, um, you know, other librarians there, people that work there, said, what's your favourite? Like, where, where's the place to go and check out? They go, you've got to go up to the Queen's um, Ian Potter. Hall. Yeah, yeah, the Queen's Hall. Go check that out. And you, you walk in and it is uh, amazing. I love there's bits on the wall where um, the paint's just been stripped back mm. and years and years and years have just been stripped back and it's and you've just left bits and yeah. it's like the original paintwork is there and it's just really oh. beautiful. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. It? And then also someone told me that they found um, a pair of boots. That's right. Yeah, so it, it, this is just such a beautiful story apparently um 
at the time that the building uh, was uh, constructed, um, it was good luck to, to uh, for builders to leave a pair of boots in the actual foundations. And so as they were, as the builders got in there, they found this pair of boots, which is now in our collection. Wow. Of course, because we, yeah. So it was really lovely. Yeah. Have, have you got a, sometimes when there's these big renovations and you can focus on the big stuff, have you got a favourite little nook or <coughs> cranny that you want to send people to just to have a look at? Yeah. Look, what the... My no, I can't say my favourite space. You know, it's like saying <laughs> your favourite child. Um, but I'm not a librarian, and so I, I've only been at the library for four years. And one of the things that I really love about it um, is the chess collection. So we've got this massive chess collection. But what I love is people coming in every day and sitting down and having a game of chess with strangers. And it's this little hidden community. And uh, so we have that inside. Now, it's in Queen's Hall on Mm. the mezzanine level and it's this just beautiful space where you can come, get away. It's in the middle of the city, but you get away and it's just this beautiful, quiet retreat. Um, But I also love the the quad for for me as well. That was a sort of information um, centre, but now it's been, it's light and it's bright and it's airy and it's got four courtyards off it. So, yeah, it's just it's just it really feels reinvigorated. What do you think, Sir Edmund Barry, would make of what you've overseen? Yeah, well, look, it's interesting because I often look at Queen's Hall that we were in yesterday mm. and I think when he built that, um, Victoria had 200,000 people. So it kind of is a symbol of the aspiration that he had and the vision that he had for Victoria. And I kind of think with Victorian government investing in this redevelopment, it it feels that that's the same kind of, you know, investment in the future. Mm. And what's the State Library's relationship with entrepreneurs? Well, this is a big part of the redevelopment. One of the things that we've seen over the past sort of five years in the the kinds of things that people are coming in and asking about is a real increase in people saying, I've got this business idea or, or, you know, I've always wanted to kind of just check out whether or not this would be a a good idea to kind of pursue. And so we've set up this centre for entrepreneurs and it's not people who would go to co-working spaces or would necessarily be kind of comfortable at a university entrepreneurial, you know, centre. It's really people who just are... Are on the cusp of of wanting to discover whether or not their idea has feet. So this will be a membership based program. We're really encouraging people to get in contact with us if they're interested. We're really wanting creative people. Often it's creative people who have that idea who just kind of need a little bit of help and a bit mm. of a bit of support to take it to the next step. Mm. Um, so Start Space will formally launch next year in in February, um, but we're wanting people now to to let us know whether they're interested in that program. Have you wandered around on your own? Uh, I have. It's so funny you say that because, um, and we were talking about this yesterday, Mm. but um, for two hours the night before we opened, (gasps) we just had all of the staff in the new spaces and it was so beautiful. It was really really lovely and quite sort of um, emotional really because everyone, whether or not you're a librarian or whether or not you work in our digital team or our admin team, it's been such a big effort so it was lovely to have the space to ourselves and as the librarians pointed out it was it will never be that clean no, and tidy exactly. yeah. Yeah. has yeah. there been a first dropped glass or <laughs> a scuff mark yeah yeah uh what about the role of the library itself we look at um you know the news this week about education standards in australia dropping or 
um, you know, yeah. arts funding being yeah. threatened and things like that. What, what is the, the role of an institution like a state library in the uh, the health of a democracy? Even? Well, for us, that's such a great question because for us now, our focus is um, is designing programming to bring that, those spaces to life. And I think our role is is more critical than ever because at the library it is the centre of free speech and debate and public discourse. We're the space where you can have safe, robust conversations, civil discourse, if, if you like. And so the programming that we're now designing is really, is really aimed at at, um, at taking that role to the next level, because mm. um, lots of lots of discussion and debate now is kind of angry and it's polarized and polarizing. Mm. We see ourselves as an opportunity. If you walk into that library, as you probably saw mm. yesterday, you're never going to find a more diverse group of people, from CEOs who come down there just to get away from the city for a while and spend a bit of time doing some work. Um, you know, through to students, international students. It's just a very democratic place. And so I think it's it's harder to, and harder to find spaces that are so diverse. So we want to bring people together in discussions and debates. And more trivially, the uh, key <laughs> architect is getting married. I love it. Mm. Yeah. So um, so Architectus was one of our, our fantastic architects, and uh, the principal uh, Ruth is getting married next year. Right. So yeah, in the state library, in the in the, in the in, beautiful room that oh, we're in the Is that a, a plebs allowed to do that as well? Or <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's available. It is available, it is available. for hire. Yeah. Oh, pay though. How yeah. exciting. Um, and entry is still free to the State Library. Yeah. That's the lovely thing about it. After you know, all the these years. Are free. Uh, CEO Kate Tawney, thank you so much for thank coming you. in. Melbourne's own Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.